My first time behind the SS refuge. <laughs> Woo. Does this thing make coffee? <laughs> wow. He did all button, okay. <laughs> Holy mackerel. This is a pulpit. Man. I was worried about seeing the time. I don't have to. <laughs> it's right there. This is wonderful. What a joy to be here with you. Modesto, did you make this? You did, didn't you? I want one just like it. <laughs> this is lovely. Wow. It's always a joy for us to be here, to be among the refugees. I'm grateful to be here in this house that the Lord is building, and we're watching so many great things happen. I'm so proud of what the Lord's doing, and our good friend, Rawl and Bettina. And, you know, you did miss, uh, you did miss one ministry. Many of you don't know this. Um, just a few weeks ago, I also taught the women's ministry. Uh, it was funny. We were at a restaurant with another pastor, and uh, we were sitting there talking, and all of a sudden I look over, and there's all the ladies from Refuge at Goodfellas. And, and I, I mean, I know all of them. I'm looking at them. Why, why are they here? How did that happen? Uh, how do they exist outside of refuge, you know? So it was really, really fun. And I took a picture of me with a Bible, and we sent it to Rawl, and he was very alarmed. <laughs> but, uh, boy, what a, what a joy it was. The only, the only ministry I think I've not done is youth around here. They won't have me there, that's for sure. Anyway, pleasure to be with you. Uh, we're going to be looking at Psalm 46, so you could begin to turn there if you'd like. This is one of the more amazing psalms in the Psalter. It's been an inspiration for so many. Many, many songs have been written out of this tune, the, perhaps the most famous of which is the Anthem of the Refor Reformation, written by Martin Luther. A mighty fortress is our God. Many, many different songs have been inspired. Many Christian leaders, one of whom I always think of when I preach this passage, my dear friend who went to be with the Lord a couple of years ago, John Battler, the man who uh, is almost directly responsible for me being in ministry. He, stepped, he was stepping aside from junior high ministry at Calvary Chapel of Redlands and uh, allowed me to step in. And uh, I had him as one of my chaplains for the Colton Fire Department for a short time before the Lord took him home a few years ago. So I always think of John when I think of this, and if there's anyone to blame for my ministry, you can blame him. <clears throat> but Psalm 46, I'd like to ask you to stand. We'll read a little bit from it, and we'll commence. Psalm 46, verse 4, there is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, and she shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge, Selah. Come behold the works of the Lord who is made desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease, to, end the earth, to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still 
and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Father, we come before you now and we thank you for your holy word. We are grateful for the opportunity to study, to gather in that which you have for us this morning on this day, January in the year 2024. Who would have ever known? We pray now that you would give us wisdom, eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts ready to obey. We thank you for these things. We know, Lord, that you will work in us to will and to do. So we surrender unto your spirit now and pray for your hand to be upon us in a special way this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody agreeing, saying, amen. Amen. You may be seated. It is such a pleasure to preach the word and an enormous blessing to make a return to this text particularly. Please make note of the marks that precede the content of this psalm in your Bible, whenever you see the office of the chief musician mentioned, it should register in your mind that this psalm was meant for publication. It was meant to be mused upon and sung publicly. Now don't get me wrong, each of the psalms became a part of the public psalter, but 54, over a third of them, were written with the public in mind. God wanted the nation of Israel to internalize these thoughts, to hide them in their hearts for moments that they were sure to encounter. Psalm 46 was written with the public in mind by the sons of Korah. I don't know how many of you are familiar with that name, but their family line began with a priest that lost his life in rebellion to God. Korah along with two others, opposed Moses and indeed God himself. And then the earth opened beneath them and they were buried alive for their transgression. The sons of Korah did not allow their history from Numbers 16 to define their future. They rose in prominence instead and wrote wonderful lyrics that we sing and hold dear in our hearts today. Among them, as the deer pants for the water. Perhaps you remember the song of yesteryear, Better Is One Day. They all originated from these men's pens. Finally, we come to this interesting note regarding Alamoth. It's a word whose root means hidden place. According to the Strong's Concordance, Alamoth means to the voice of young women. Or it may refer or have reference to the falsetto voices of young boys. This leads us to the context consensus of this psalm. Most believe that this psalm was written either in the immediate aftermath or at least upon the realities that Jerusalem experienced after the Assyrian invasion. I use quotation marks because if you know the story, it was pretty much a non-event. We don't have time to look at the story in its totality, so I would strongly encourage you to take down these references and make sure to read them this afternoon. This psalm will mean so much more to you when you do. 2 Kings 18 and 19, 2 Chronicles 29 through 32, 
and Isaiah 35 through 37 all detail the same story of Assyria's siege upon Jerusalem. Now, Assyria defined the word brutal in a culture defined by brutality. Their armies were highly motivated. In fact, they were paid by the skull. None of you seem to be impressed. Without war conventions to guide or dissuade them, their cruelty was legendary as they often skinned alive their captives and led them away by putting fish hooks in the roofs of their mouths. Anyone had an ice cream headache before? It's a little worse than that. When they laid siege to Jerusalem, they had already conquered the northern tribes of Israel and were largely undefeated in any of their campaigns. In fact, that was a particular point in their taunts. Now, how would you feel if they were at your door, surrounding your city, sure to deal you a cruel a death as you could imagine? In some respect, life for Christians is slowly turning in that direction. And certainly we would remember this morning as we are here free to worship the Lord in this beautiful sanctuary with air conditioning, heating, words on the screen, comfortable seats, that there are brothers and sisters of ours today who can't meet publicly, whose lives are being threatened this very moment because of the faith that they hold that is ours. We are really a blessed nation. But it is also true that Life for Christians is moving in a direction here in this country. We're continually marginalized for holding to our faith, which often aligns with certain political persuasions, but never sways when asked to fudge on biblical standards. You and I are the outliers when it comes to life in the womb, marriage, and sexuality, and can only be so because our primary and unmoving loyalty is to God's unchanging revealed word. How shall we then live in such a hostile world when our enemy surrounds us and has such cruel plans for our demise? The psalm answers our questions, but we'll begin first with the propositions for our peace. Take a look at verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Please take note of the language employed. Notice first that these are statements, matters of fact. Confidence in our Christian life is built upon these immovable tenets of our experience. Second, you'll observe that they are written in the present tense. God is our refuge, God is our strength, God is a very present help in trouble. Time has tested the wisdom and truth of these words for the people of God. As we move into any new situation, they served to steady our hearts for what is ahead. God is our refuge. Certainly, I wouldn't need to tell you, members of refuge, what a refuge is, <laughs> but I will. <laughs> refuge is a sturdy shelter. 
a fortress, as Martin Luther would say, from any dangerous element, is what you and I would run to when the elements are overwhelming. The refuge is a safe, secure location for our safety. God has not built a shelter. He's not recommending a shelter. He himself is our shelter. He intends for us to understand that he has not outsourced our protection to any other institution. He wants his people to identify their safety in him alone. Only he has the power to protect us from any prevailing storm. Only those that find themselves in him find their protection to be fail-safe. God is our protection. He's also our power. God is our refuge and our strength. You know, it's possible to run into the refuge, but one must also have the wisdom to remain there. God infuses his believers with the strength that comes from him alone. How often have you heard someone say, I don't know how I'm doing this. I'm suffering through this thing. I don't know how I'm even standing here. I don't know how I'm even making it through. A lot of your contemporaries who don't believe in Christ wonder, how is it that they're doing this through tragedy and difficulty? How are they able to stand? How are they able to function? Because God is our strength. This word is employed 93 times in the Old Testament. 60 of those times it is translated as it is here, strength. It's also translated might, power, or boldness. Whatever strength, power, or might the Lord's, Lord's people possess comes from Him. God identifies himself as our protector, the source of our power, and our present help in trouble. Have you ever had someone tell you something like this? Oh, I wish you were, I, oh, I wish you could have been here yesterday. That tool or that person was just here. Oh boy, thanks for that. That's information I could have used yesterday. You ever had that situation? A terrible thing, isn't it? To know your resource was here. It's great that it exists, but it's terrible if it's not present. It's a great thing that God would be our power and our protector, but what a bummer if he's off somewhere else. He's got some other business to attend to. He's got someone else that more, has more urgent need than you. Our author tells us this is not the issue with our God, who is a very present help in the time of trouble. In fact, the word translated present here contains the idea of appearing. Just coming out of nowhere. When do you sense that you're in trouble? This original word is tied to the idea of being in tight quarters I know I'm in trouble when I'm navigating with very little margin on any side. Like if I don't make the right step, then I'm going to end my life one way or the other. I'm in a tight spot, one might say. I don't even know if we say that any longer. 
But that's what the idea is, to be in the narrow condition where if I don't make the right next step, I'm done. Real trouble is when you cannot see a way out from the distress in front of you and you have no real hope of deliverance. And Jerusalem was just in such a place on the night before the Assyrian siege. They went to sleep thinking, this is over. Tomorrow those Assyrians are going to be coming over that wall. They went to sleep and God got to work. His angel killing 185,000 Assyrians in a single night. You kind of wonder, like, why did you leave any alive? Well, someone has to go back and tell the story. At least one guy did. The king went back to tell the story of his lost army. In the very tightest of spots, you and I can be sure And we can look for the Lord to appear even out of thin air with all the help that we can need. Maybe you're in a tight spot this week, this morning. Maybe you're feeling the pressure of what it is that's going to happen if God doesn't respond. He can and will and often does wait for the last minute. Don't you find that to be true? I've noticed that about the Lord. He doesn't seem to care about my perception of time. He just doesn't care that I think it's way too late already. He knows the right time to respond. So how are we meant to respond to these truths? Verse 2, therefore, we will not fear. Even though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its water roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. Selah. God is our protector, our power, and our present help. What's the conclusion? What should naturally follow? Therefore, we will not fear. This is the language of decision. Fear is not something we must let live. We don't have to be guided by fear. We can decide to think otherwise. And we have good reason for doing so. Some of you may know that my son Caleb was studying in Israel with uh, the Calvary Bible Institute this last year. We took him to the airport and he was there in late September and we didn't know that October 7th was going to be a day of infamy for the nation of Israel. No one knew. And it was a few weeks after October 7th, I was perusing through Twitter, now known I think as X. Uh, Twix, someone called it recently, which immediately made me want to go to the store and get some candy. But um, I, I'm going through Twitter and I, I, and I search up northern Israel where, where he was and there were all these pins inundating the entire area. In fact, the whole area was covered in pins and I felt, okay, I, I don't normally like to intrude upon my son's time. I, I don't want him to feel as though I'm, you know, hanging over him watching, but I had to I had to text. And sure enough, he texted back. And it's all funny because, you know, he's 20 years old. And, uh, and I said, son, is everything going okay there? And he goes, he writes back, uh, yeah, could you pray for us? <laughs> there's, 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 there's two groups of terrorists that are supposedly coming our way. One is 15 minutes away. One is 10 minutes away. 
They've flown in over the walls from Syria. He's right there on the border with Syria and Hezbollah. And because we were just learning at the time of the inhumanity of those that perpetrated the attacks of October 7th, my head was spinning as I sat there. My wife was at work. The, all the kids are gone. I was there in, in my house alone. And I was, I was immediately just, Lord, what, what do you do? What, what, are, what are we supposed to do about this? I can't just go over there right now and go all frambo on people. So I was stuck as a, as a father. It's the worst nightmare. When your only son, he is our only son. Not as he, not as he our only son. But he's our family's only male child. So he's like extra important. <laughs> I was studying this text at that very time. And I shared this very verse with him. Therefore, we will not fear. You'll be happy to know he turned out okay. It turned out to be a false alarm. Today he's sitting in Yorba Linda, which I think is more dangerous than, than Israel. <laughs> but I told him, because God is who he is, we will not fear. When you understand who your God is, it's, someone, it's somewhat baffling mentally that fear exists at all. Yet, we would be fools to say that there aren't things to be afraid of. There are plenty of sources of fear. And the psalmist gives us a few examples that are illustrating the same point. The, the earth that we walk upon is generally stable, is it not? It'd be a great time for an earthquake, wouldn't it? <laughs> but it's generally stable underneath our feet. We put our feet down and expect terra firmer. But what if it moved? Many of the older translations favor the word changed. What if the, the earth underneath you changed from a solid state to a liquid state? What could possibly be more secure than a mountain? Well, what would you do if you walked outside and these mountains would be enveloped by the sea? The psalmist is talking about cataclysm and events. That would alter the landscape forever. He will not fear though the mountains shake. Now think about that. Instability, change, upending that which is secure, chaos. What does all that sound like to you? Sounds like last night's broadcast of the news to me. How stable is our quickly eroding world peace? Who are we going to bomb this week? Who's going to stand up and do some form of terror somewhere on our planet tomorrow? Think about the change in attitudes and opinions of our culture and its abandonment of Christ. What institution can you name that hasn't revealed how insecure and untrustworthy it is? Think about it. Banks, political parties, government, even the church. Just this past week, I was informed of news that once again grieved my soul in this regard because even in the church, 
there are men who are operating without biblical warrant. How long will it be until we see the next wave of chaos in our streets from men who think they are women and boys who think they're girls and the adults that are attracted to them? Even if all this happens, we will not give in to or be motivated out from fear. Where does fear emanate from? It can only come from one place. From our failure to see God, the unchanging Almighty One. In fact, many of us fail to put our trust there entirely because we've transferred our trust to alternate sources of protection, power, and presence. If you've ever wondered why we are frustrated or nearly abusive toward people or institutions, it's primarily because they can never live up to what God himself is. Banks, our savings, our 401ks are destined to fail us. Our spouses or trusted family friends are not infallible sources. And our churches and pastors are merely under shepherds. Men, at best, in the final analysis. If there is fear, one might deduce that it stems from where our eyes are focused. Selah. Let us ponder what that means, and move toward our second section. Take a look at verse 4, and the place of our peace. Verse 4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge, Selah. With all the chaos that was described for us in the previous verse, the sons of Korah draw our attention now elsewhere. It's so abrupt and unnatural that it must itself bear a message to the author's intention. Cataclysm, upheaval, chaos, it's all natural parts of this fallen, rebellious planet. If you expect there to be order and you expect there to be no cataclysm and no disaster, you are living on the wrong planet. This place is destined for all of that because it is fallen, it's in rebellion to its creator. Alternately, order, calm, peace, and stability are only possible where God and his rule is manifested. What we have here is the portrait of the city of God. And what do we find? There's a river whose streams make the inhabitants glad. Why? What, what, would, that, what would that mean to them? Well, rivers are natural borders. And streams symbolize peace. Don't they? You ever been by a stream and just listen to it for a while? You just close your eyes and just hear that water moving softly and quietly in the background. It is such a peaceful environment. 
There's no turmoil or upheaval in the city of God, only abounding joy. Now, what is this man seeing? Jerusalem has never yet been surrounded by a river. It's never happened. There's no, it's, it's possible that the psalmist is, is seeing a picture of heaven where, unlike earth, all is undisturbed. That's possible. But I don't know that that really explains what we're seeing here. In fact, if I could suggest to you, I believe the sons of Korah are giving us a prophetic picture of the new Jerusalem that will stand at the time of the millennium when Christ will dwell and rule physically upon the earth. Let me give you two references. I'd love for you to read these later on today, along with the other references I already gave you. You're going to be busy. Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12, and then Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. They both speak of a river that flows from the throne of God, which becomes a fountain of healing for the nations, for the waters of the earth, but it also acts as an impassable border. Uh, Ezekiel, in his passage, when you read there later, he's going to travel a thousand cubits. A thousand cubits is the length of the tip of your finger to the point of your elbow. Most people just make it about 18 inches. So a thousand cubits times 18 inches. If you have a calculator, you're a math guy, you probably already figured it out. But you go a thousand cubits this way, and the water was up to his ankles. You go a thousand cubits further, and now it's up to his knees. A thousand cubits out, and so on. And at some point, it becomes so large that you can't even swim in it. You have to swim to get around it. It's an impassable border. But even better, it's ruled, the city of God, by an undefeated God. God is in her midst. You see, the Assyrians and their siege provided an illustration of coming events. If you recall from the book of Revelation that at the end of the millennium, this will bring about one final satanically led rebellion against the Lord. According to Revelation chapter 20, verse 7 through 9, after the tribulation in the millennium, Satan will gather an innumerable host from the nations that will surround and camp around the saints and the beloved city. Now listen again to the promise in the prophecy there in verse uh, 4 and 5. She shall not be moved. The word can be alternately translated shaken. In that day, the Lord will help her at just the right time as he had also helped against the Assyrians. Satan will somehow have stirred up the nation's for a final time, convincing him of the possible vulnerability of God. Can you imagine that? I, it's hard for me to imagine that we can be such fools as human beings. And yet, who am I kidding? <laughs> what am I watching today? Things that we've done, that we've acted upon, the policies that our nation is trying to force upon people. This is entirely possible. So Satan gets this whole group to move and they come up against the Lord and look at how they act toward him. They raged 
and moved against him. They growled in hatred against the Lord and were moved. It speaks of tottering, and, and, and it's a metaphor to describe moving away from a righteous position. And there's no better description than this. And what happened? The Lord destroyed the systems of the world, which harbored evil and wickedness, By destroying religious and commercial Babylon, he inserted himself onto his rightful throne in Jerusalem and ushered in a prolonged and satisfying peace for a thousand years, promoting how his kingdom stood in absolute contrast to the world. And still, for all these benefits, mankind that had survived the tribulation were still unredeemed, deciding to side with Satan and attempt to force their freedom from him. When they come upon the city, the Apostle John describes what will occur for us in Revelation 20, verse 9b. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. The psalmist is just as brief when he writes that he uttered his voice and the earth melted. This is the Lord of heaven's armies. This is the God we take refuge in. Think about it. What is intimidating to you? What do you fear? What do you stand up and you say, oh man, now we're really in trouble. I've heard men, I've heard women, I've heard Christians who panic over what so-and-so is going to do and they're here now and now they're going to have power and they're going to do things. I hear of people who have administrative, you know, capabilities and schools and they're going to enforce this. And then they have one or two teachers who's praying against it. And guess what? Those administrators are gone. Magically reassigned elsewhere. In giving this ultimate example of history before it happens, also known as prophecy, The psalmist is reminding God's people, folks, victory is assured. Verse 8, come behold the works of the Lord, who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease. To the end of the earth, he breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Boy, you don't have to wait till till the millennium. Think of all the Lord has done up until now. Divine judgments are easily and physically observed in the earth from the effects of a worldwide flood in Genesis chapter 7 to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. I don't know how many of you know this. There is a, uh, and this is for a YouTube dive later today. I've taken up your whole day. (laughs) You'll be back here tonight worshiping with Ray. You're going to be having so much in your head to thank the Lord for. You can thank me later. But when you go home and you look up Tel El Hamam, T-E-L-L-E-L-H-A-M-M-A-M, Tel El Hamam, and you'll want to find lectures from a man named Dr. Stephen Collins. He's written a paper published, peer-reviewed, about the effects of what is an afterburst over Tel el-Hammam, which they do believe, archaeologically, to be Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Now, the paper is very technical. It takes a long time to read. And you may not understand everything in it. But it is fascinating when you read the physical evidences of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and how it lines up with Scripture entirely. You can find these things right now online. I encourage you, don't just go, don't believe everything I say just because I don't know why you would do that. Maybe you don't know me. <laughs> but don't believe everything I say. Go check it out. These are desolations that God has made that you can see. Places up in the Alps. Why are they finding fish fossils? Why else? Global catastrophe in a flood. You can see these things and hear about them. You think about the destruction of Egypt and the account of the ten plagues, of the routing of the Midianites, Philistines, Moabites, and Ammonites. These are all biblical examples of desolation. By the way, how many of you know a Midianite? Anybody have an Ammonite neighbor? They no longer exist. And someday, wars will cease as well. The weapons that men employ against each other will be rendered powerless or be made ready for a beautiful bonfire. Swords, Isaiah tells us, will be made into plowshares and men won't learn to war again. It's coming. Biblical prophecy is more certain than any other forecast. And that brings with it an ominous change in author here in our passage as the Lord himself breaks in to directly address all who will listen. Take a look at verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. We've heard the propositions for our peace. We've examined the place of our peace. Now, here is a word from the prince of our peace. It's an interesting message. Both for the believer as well as the unbeliever. Be still. It's command language. This is not an option. It is written as a command. You be still. It's the quieting of one's soul. Let me, let me say this. When you're commanded to do something, this means that you have the capability to do it. God cannot command you, and, and by God cannot, that's a weird way to say that. God can do anything he wants. But he will not, he will not command you to do something you cannot do. So if he commands you to be still, guess what? You have the capability of being still, quieting your own soul, managing 
your own emotions. Many of us believe we're slaves to our emotions. I'm just this way. We are all just this way until Yahweh, and then it's his way or the highway. You might say no way, and you're wrong. We have the power given to us by the Holy Spirit who indwells us to actively say yes and obey this command. Be still. Soul. Calm down. Take a chill pill. Physically, when this word was used, it refers to letting one's hands drop to their side. This feels weird. I'm doing this in front of you. I'm not doing it because I want to. When we have our hands up, what are we doing? We're, We're blocking We're making something happen. We're working. We're frenetically trying to make an outcome happen. And and God says, be still physically. The idea in the picture is, put your hands down. For the believer, this expresses the anxiety that, that accompanies the need to control outcomes. When we are overwhelmed and our hands are up, our actions lead us to the moments that we're least proud of. Am I right? I usually get a lot of amens on that one. I guess not. Not here. You guys are so spiritual. I forgot. (laughs) I forgot about that. Where's that lightning button? <laughs> Just... Anyway, that'd be a cool thing to throw. Modesto, make a note. For mine, I want the lightning button. <clears throat> so he's telling us, relax and let go of your concern regarding the state of things spiritually. Oh, I can hear it in your heads. It's ringing, especially that guy. How can we do that when all the world is going to hell in a handbasket? And many of us, by the way, are, if I could say this to you, with all honesty, you're stirring up your own anxiety by watching the news as often as you do. By inflaming yourself, by going home and turning on whatever BC, BBC, NBC, ABC. And you're watching and listening to every political point. You get in your car and you turn on so-and-so. And you inundate your soul with what makes you angriest. And you wonder, why is it that I'm so concerned about the world? It's because you've fed yourself concern. You have fed yourself anxiety, and you reap what you sow. Sow unto the Spirit, and you'll reap the Spirit. 
I used to have to drive to Orange County when I was an assistant pastor there. It was, as you may know, if you ever drove the 91, any length of the 91, it's about a nine-hour journey. (laughs) I remember being so angry at them. Whatever, you know, I had my political news on and I was watching the traffic, angry at all the people who are trying to get places. <laughs> Where are they going that's so important? Don't they know I'm trying to get home? Who here commutes? Just by any, did anybody? Okay, we have several commuters. So you know what your atmosphere in your car can be like. And then you come home. And your wife, who's done nothing to you all day, is cooking you a hot meal at the moment. Receives all the venom that you can't give to your opponent who's not even there. And your poor wife or your poor husband receives all that venom. I made a decision one day on that trip, on that nine-hour trip. I'm going to redeem this time. I'm going to start listening to sermons. I'm going to go through a whole book of the Bible. So I had to, it was Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Tuesday was going to be, I'm going to go through the book of Mark. I'm going to choose three pastors and I'm going to listen to the book of Mark. Wednesday, I'm going to listen to the book of Genesis, as it were. And these aren't totally accurate. Third day, I'm going to just listen to worship music. All the way there, all the way back. It got to the point where I got home. And I had to take another lap around just to keep enjoying myself for what the Lord was doing in that car. It made such a huge difference when I came home to my wife. You have to make decisions to obey, to be still. What does that mean? What needs to be cut out of your life? What things that they're not bad And this is what a lot of Christians do. Oh, it's not bad. That's the wrong way to view what it is that you steward. Don't say, this isn't just, it's just not bad. Is it good for me? Is it profitable? Is it building my spirit? Those are the questions you ask. Is this good for me? Is it not just good for me? Is it good for my family, my wife, and my kids? But how can I just sit quietly? Friends, what's more real than this present reality? What will endure beyond this moment? How many leaders have we seen come and gone? I just listened to, I just watched a, a meme yesterday on, on X. If, if, and it was by uh, somebody, I can't remember who it was, it said it. But it said, if you only knew how little people thought about you after death, you would stop worrying about what they think about you in life. Be still and know that I am God. Again, this is imperative. It's a command from God himself. Be still. And this is the way it's written because it's in plural. Being still and be in the state of being knowledgeable about this fact. Aren't you thankful for English? Could you imagine how long your Bible would be if every statement was written out like that 
being still and be in the state of being knowledgeable of the fact that he is God. One commentator said it like this many years ago. I remember hearing, be still, be in a state of rediscovery that he is God. Oh, how many times do we have to remind ourselves of this? Every day I have to remind myself, Lord, you're still on the throne. You are still omnipotent. You've allowed your kingdom to be such as it's invisible and strong in the hearts of those of us who walk with you. And we're left to be ambassadors so that others will come and find the grace that's been shown to us. I have to remember who you are. I have to keep in mind that you haven't changed just because this guy's in office or that guy's coming up or this thing is going to possibly be a law. Be still and know that I am God. Doesn't that change everything for you? Maybe I'm alone. It happens. Sometimes I read the word and I think, am I the only one getting anything out of this? I could just stand here for another hour just touching the leather on this pulp is amazing. <laughs> I'm happy just that. Just, if I could just stand here. This, this pulpit here alone is a great refuge for me. I could hide behind this thing forever. But doesn't that cement the realities that God sets forth for us for our future? Be still and know that I'm God. Today there's charity, but soon... There's inevitability. Notice what he says. I will be exalted in the earth. The nations will exalt the Lord. In our experiences, we've watched the nations thumb their noses at God as they stand behind and celebrate policies and people that oppose him openly and vocally. God says, I will be lifted high among the nations, I will be exalted in the earth. Christian, do you believe that? Do you hold to that? Do you keep that in your heart and mind? As you're looking at what contradicts scripture, do you not have to take this moment and say, God, you said you're going to be exalted among the nations and in the earth. That's the, that's the message for you and I who are believers. If you're a believer in here, that's the message for you. Whatever you think is contrary to God, it cannot stand, and he will not have it. But for the unbeliever, the message is quite different than that. And if you are an unbeliever, or if you know an unbeliever, <laughs> who doesn't know an unbeliever? <laughs> we all have family. For the unbeliever, the message is quite different. They're called to halt in peace and lay down their hostile arms against the God that will be God no matter what they do. The God who's not going to honor their pronouns or honor what they believe to be their identity. The God who will not be voted out by legislation who will not be turned down by hostile intention. 
The unbeliever believes that he can make the earth the habitation of his own exaltation. But God will have none of it, and he warns them. He warns you, if you're not a believer here today, it doesn't matter what you think is going to happen. God is who he says he is, and he's going to do what he says he can do, and it will happen. And one day, you will join believers in bowing to Christ. If you do so as a believer, it will be as a recognition and validation of all you've ever done, all you've been doing. But if you're an unbeliever, it'll be resignation. And you will do so through clenched teeth and a soul that is vexed. The Lord of hosts is with us. It's funny, the God of Jacob. This is sort of a rub at you and I. You know, because Jacob's name turned out later to be Israel, so much more glorious, governed by God. <laughs> Jacob's con man, <laughs> heel catcher. <laughs> the God of Jacob, the God of the heel catcher, the God of the con men, the God of the wretches. That's us. He's with us. He's going to be our continual refuge, and all those that rise against us will be forced to acknowledge that fact. I'd like to invite the worship team to come up as we close, but as we draw to a conclusion, what lessons are we to take from this magnificent psalm? Let me suggest three. First of all, the propositions for our peace lie in who our God is. He won't be our refuge. He wasn't at a time our refuge. He is our refuge, our strength, our present help in time of distress. Because he cannot lie, fail, or recant on his position. You and I should be confident. Almighty, omnipotent God has related himself to you and I by the blood of his Son. He has never failed and you're not going to be the one he starts with. Some of us are so afraid. Oh man, God's going to drop the ball this time. Do you realize that would ruin his reputation? He's not going to fail you or me. Be confident. Second, the place of our peace is very different from the place that we live in now. God's city is undisturbed. It's a place of joy and wonder. Because our God dwells within. He's drawing all of history into its consummation. And one day, the prophetic word of the psalmist will be the present world in which we live. Because his plan won't fail. Christians, be encouraged. Be encouraged. Finally, the prince of our peace has a message for us as we wait for him on a chaotic, seemingly uncontrollable planet. Be still. Raise your hands only to pray and praise the God who is 
our God. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness in preserving it for us and for reminding us this day of that which is most important for our confidence, our encouragement. You are our God. You are our refuge, our strength, and our present help in time of need. Father, forgive us for looking elsewhere. Forgive us, Lord, for looking upon other sources. Oh, God, thank you so much for redirecting our focus this morning. And right now, if you are somebody here who has never come to Christ, you have never confessed your sins, you have never experienced forgiveness, it is offered to you by the Holy Spirit who calls and draws all men unto Christ. This day, if you would be willing to look unto Christ to repent of your sins and to turn your heart over to Jesus, he would give you new life. If you've never done that before, I pray that you will listen now. He is who he says he is. He does what he says he can do. I pray you come to him and receive all that he promises. So Lord, I lift up those that would be being drawn to you now. We pray in Jesus' name that you would work in their hearts towards salvation. They would draw near, repenting of their sins, believing upon Christ, that you would give them your Holy Spirit and new life. Lord, we pray you would be doing this in our midst. We pray you would be doing this now in Jesus' name.